Let us pray. Heavenly Father, on this day, where we recognize that your Son is King of the universe, may you speak to us from your word. May we hear the good news that is the story of your Son, Jesus Christ. And may it make our lives different. We ask this all in your Son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So we've reached the end of Pentecost, as I said before. And today is Christ the King Sunday. Now, I read a book, and, and no one needs to read this book. Um, you can if you want, but I don't know if you'd be that interested in it. I read a book uh, by a scholar, and um, he didn't like where we put Christ the King Sunday in the lectionary. It was something that was added in the last 100 years, first by the Roman Catholic Church, and then it was adopted by um, other churches. And then when the Revised Common Lectionary, which is all that to say is the readings that we get each week, are from a, a lectionary, a schedule of readings that is used across denominations around the world. But when that lectionary was revised, uh, Christ the King Sunday was put in there and it had readings for it. But this scholar doesn't like it being the last day of the lectionary because he says it miscommunicates what's already true. It's not that Jesus has to wait to the end of the story to become king. He's already king. And this scholar says if we're going to celebrate Jesus being king, it should be on the day where he ascended and left earth to be with his father again. And that would put this day all the way at the beginning of the lectionary, in the beginning of the church calendar, um, right after Easter, before Pentecost. So that's really more in the middle, I guess, not at the beginning. But that being said, it's an opportunity for us to talk about Jesus being king. Now, if you notice the title of the sermon, Jesus for President, it might be a little bit of a provocative title. Now, there's a book out there called Jesus for President. I haven't read it, but I'm pretty sure I, I know a lot about what it would say. And I think it's important for us as we enter into this conversation to think about the reality is, well, who is it that is actually our ruler? Who is it that is actually the person who is guiding the direction of where we're going? If we think about the office of president in our country, the president sets the agenda and tries to direct the legislation for our country in the time that this person is in office. So in some ways, they do impact our lives in a very real way. And in some ways, the president doesn't have that much power to do what a king could do. But let's think about that. Who is it that we want leading our life? And who is it that actually is leading our life? And the next question that we need to consider is, well, what is actually the good news? Because as Christians, we profess having good news for the world. And what is this good news? What is this gospel that we proclaim? 
It's good news, I think, that Jesus is king. It's good news that Jesus is king. But for us to understand this, we actually need to start at the beginning because this story doesn't start with Jesus. It starts somewhere else. And this is something that I've never done before. It's something I've never even tried to do when I sat down and wrote this. And I don't know if it's something that any of you have actually ever experienced. So it's something that I want us to do together and think about how it might impact the way we think about our faith. Because we sit and we have these Bibles and they're all around us. I have probably four or five of them in my office right now that just sit there that I have and people have given me and they might have a a purpose if I need it. But how often have we ever thought about how this is actually not just a bunch of books, but it's actually a story. And it's not necessarily instructions for our life, but it's a story. We need to start in the beginning. So this story begins when God spoke. God spoke and all things were made. And not only were they made, but they were orderly and intentional. God didn't make a mistake when he created. There wasn't some sort of unintended consequence that he didn't know about that came about from his creation. He made what he meant to make, and he said that it was good. And what he did was he made this creation, and what this creation was supposed to be was a temple. Now, we don't know what temples are in our day because we don't have temples. But in ancient times, if you wanted to meet the God, you had to go to the temple. Because the God's only presence on the uni- or in the world, or in really the city, or the nation, was in the temple. So, gods could only dwell in temples. But this place that God made was an entire universe that was a temple. Meaning that his creation could experience him wherever they were in this place that he made for him to dwell with his creation. In the midst of this creation, God made something special. He made an icon. A creature made to represent him in his creation. And he placed this creature in a garden. And he told these creatures to act on his behalf in his temple. So now temples in the ancient time always had an icon or an image of the God. In God's temple, he made an icon. And he said, act on my behalf. Care for creation. Use it. Make it something great. And this is the thing. We are those icons. Humans are God's image bearers in creation. What this means is that we represent God in creation. If we witness God's presence in the world, or if we want to witness God's presence in the world, we need to look no further than all of the people around us. Because all of us were placed here to do one thing, to represent God in creation. So God made these icons and he gave us the freedom to choose to follow him. He didn't make us obedient, but he let us choose to be obedient. And there finally came a time when these icons 
were faced with the choice. Are they going to represent God or were they going to choose to be God? Were they going to choose to do as God had asked them to do or are they going to be their own creator, their own maker? Are they, become, are they going to become a self-maker and let, instead of doing as God had asked them to do? And we know the story. These humans chose to be their own self-maker, to set their own direction, to no longer represent God, but to represent themselves. And because of this, God said, you cannot be here any longer. <coughs> Excuse me. Because in the garden, it seems that these creatures, these icons, were not only, they were immortal, they could live forever. And because they knew what was happening once they chose to be like God, they could no longer be living forever. So God said, you need to leave. But this is also where God steps in because he could have ended the story there. But instead he chooses to continue. The relationship between God and his icons had been severed because humans chose their own path rather than following God's. But God decided to make things right. So there's lots of twists and turns in the story between that first pair and what happens next. But eventually God chooses a man named Abraham. Now he asks Abraham to move his family from one place to a distant land he'd never been to. And Abraham obeys without hesitation. And God also promises to Abraham that he will have many descendants and his descendants will be used by God to bless the nations. The thing about this didn't make sense to Abraham though is because he didn't have any children. And he said, I can't, my wife can't get pregnant. So first Abraham tries to solve the problem himself. But it doesn't work out. And then finally, God says, your wife will be pregnant. And they still don't believe him. But they're faithful enough to maybe hope. And then sure enough, time passes and and Sarah gives birth to a son. One thing leads to another and these descendants grow. And God has been faithful to the promise to Abraham. They grow and get great. And God cares for these descendants, and eventually he needs to protect them from a famine, so he sends them to Egypt. And we know the story. Hopefully you know the story. These descendants go to Egypt, but eventually they get so big that Egypt gets nervous. And they take these descendants of Abraham, now called Israelites, and they enslave them. But even while they're slaves, God is faithful to his chosen people. He raises up a great prophet and liberator to save his people. And this person he even placed within the throne room of Egypt before he removed him to liberate his people. This man, Moses, was chosen to save his people. And through a series of power moves between the gods of Egypt and the God of Israel... The God of Israel is shown to be victorious and his chosen people are set free and then he leads them to a mountain and he says, you're going to go and you're going to worship me. So Moses takes them to a mountain and on the mountain they meet their God and they're so scared they say, you know what Moses, you go up there, we don't want to go up there by him. 
So Moses goes up there, and when he comes down, his face is shining. But Moses comes down, and he has laws, and he has rules, and he says, God wants to make an agreement with us. He wants us to be his people. He wants us to use, to use us to bless the nations. All we have to do is be obedient to him and make him our God. And on that day, God gives his people a law, making them a nation. Back then, you needed to have laws if you were a nation. Otherwise, you weren't a nation. You were just a group of people. But they had laws. So we need to see the shift. So first, God had placed two people in, a, in the garden to be his image bearers, to represent him. But that didn't work out. So God decides to choose a group of people, a place where his image bearers can represent him to the world. So this is the role that Israel is supposed to have. <clears throat> Excuse me. Israel was supposed to be a nation where people could look and see what it looked like to live in the garden again. A place where you can meet God. They were supposed to be priests. Now a priest is a person who mediates on behalf of a God to people. Israel was supposed to be a place where other nations could look and say, why is that nation so different? And then when they came asking, Israel was supposed to say, you know what? All you have to do is come, be a part of us, and you'll find out. Because remember, God was trying to save his people, and he says, I have to show them. And the only way I can show them is if I set up this group of people to show them. But it doesn't work out. Israel is unable to follow the way of God. And it wasn't just the people, but it was the leaders that they asked for. They kept getting leaders that fell short of God's appointment. Some of the leaders were good, but most of them were not good. And they continued to be disobedient, and God continued to warn them and be patient and say, you need a return, you need a return, or this is going to happen. But things continued to spiral downward. But God was still faithful. He was patient. Remember, again, he didn't have to be patient. He didn't have to be faithful. One mess up, and he was able to break the agreement, because that's how it went. He was under no obligation to remain faithful as long as he did, but he remained faithful. But eventually, he had to let the choices of the Israelites catch up with them. So they were taken into exile, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. So what this means is the Israelite people were no longer the nation they were promised to, have, to be. They didn't have their land. They didn't have a king. They weren't able to live under their own laws. They didn't have their temple. They didn't have anything. But God was faithful. He kept a, a faithful remnant, a group of faithful Israelites who he said, I will reinstate your status through this faithful line. He remained faithful. And while these people were, were exiled, God started to give them promises. He said, I promised to your King David that he would always be on the throne. And you're probably wondering why he's not. But I promise, he said, that I'm going to reinstate someone in the line of David to be your king. 
And then there's another thing that came up. He said, I'm going to send someone who's anointed to come on my behalf for your people. This anointed one is going to come and reestablish you as a great nation. And while the Israelites were exiled, God promised that he would bring justice on the evil nations of the world that had oppressed them. And he would set those people free. And now this became an important theme of the exile. Because the Israelite people had been forced to live under evil governments, and they longed again for the days when they'd be set free to live under the rule of God, where they'd be blessed. Now this is what the Daniel reading talks about. We get a snapshot into the world of Israelite people while they're in exile, where they're waiting for liberation. And as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair on his head was as white as, like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and in it, its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming, down, coming out from before him. Thousands upon the thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated, and the book was, were opened. And in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was the one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. He was, his dominion is an ever, everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. They heard the story of a man called the Son of Man, the anointed one who would come. He would be given authority and all the nations and peoples of every language would worship him, even the kings. So they had this promise and they had this hope, but they were still waiting. Now we fast forward another couple hundred years. They're no longer in exile. The Israelite people have been able to return to Jerusalem. They've been given the ability to build a new temple, but they're still not free. They're living under Roman occupation. But remember, they have these promises. And they're like, well, we have the land and we have the temple, but we don't, we're not able to live under our own law. God's promised this. Why aren't we having it? And then in the midst of all this, there's a man who comes on the scene. He's an odd man who dresses strangely and has an, a, is an odd diet. We often forget about this man, but his name was John the Baptist. And he came... On the scene, and he preached repentance to Israel. He says, you've been waiting for your Savior to come. You've been waiting for your Messiah. He's coming, so you need to repent of your sins and get ready. Now, John the Baptist is really important because what he does is he signals to us within the scriptures that what God has promised is coming true. He says, something is about to change. You need to be looking for it. The Messiah is coming. And then now this is when Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene. He's baptized by John. And at this baptism, his divine appointment is declared to Israel. 
And then he begins to travel around Palestine and preach and teach and heal people, doing miracles, casting out demons. And he talks about one thing. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. And all that people can start to think is, is this the Messiah? Is he going to liberate us from Rome? Are we going to have our own nation again? Jesus also claims to be the son of man. Remember that passage from Daniel. He saw himself as the one coming on God's behalf. And he identifies himself as this person. So this was an important sign for the people in the times. He is claiming to identify that he is the one who is coming to be set on the throne of David forever. The promises are starting to come true. And there's something else that Jesus claims too. He claims to be the Old Testament concept of the Messiah. He says all those promises about the anointed one coming, he says that they're fulfilled in me. He's like, all you need to do is look. And then on top of all this, he also claims something no one expected. He claims to be God. He says, not only am I the Messiah, he is like, I am from the Father. And I do as the Father has done. And I have been with the Father since the beginning. And all of these things become very unpopular. And as Jesus travels around Palestine, the Jewish leaders start to take notice of him and they don't like him because he threatens their power. Each group has their own reasons, whether it's spiritual or political. Some of them didn't like Jesus because he threatened their political status. Others, he threatened their religious status, but they didn't like him. We know how the story goes. Jesus is arrested during the Passover festival, and he's crucified by the Roman Empire. He's executed like a foreigner who's also a political threat to the Roman Empire. But three days later, after entering death, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He appears to his apostles and others followers and other followers who are with him. And he walks with these people for some 40-odd days before leaving the earth under the watchful eye of his disciples. So the, the Israelites were waiting for a political Messiah to liberate them from Israel or from Rome. But Jesus comes to be something greater. They expected a king to rule them, but what they got with Jesus was a king of the world. So if we go back, remember, what was the original goal of Israel? They were supposed to be a nation where people could look and be blessed. We're all these images of God, but we can't figure out how to live. So God said, I'm going to give you a law, and I'm going to make you a people group, and I'm going to show you how to live the way I've called you to live. You want to know how to be a good image bearer? You want to know how to be a good representation of me in the world? Look no further than these laws I've given Israel. There's supposed to be a nation that is, that is a better place to live than anywhere else. Where women are treated better, where orphans are treated better, or where slaves are treated better, where the laws are fair. And now Jesus comes and he says, The kingdom of God has arrived. 
So this is where the shift happens. Jesus comes, and yes, he is the king. He is the one who sits on the throne of David. But the shift goes from just Israel as a nation to God's eternal kingdom that Israel is a part of. But it's bigger than just that one little group of people. And Jesus says, I am the king of all people. But when Jesus died, he also did something really important. Because when he died, he made it so that we could be with God again. (coughs) Excuse me. If you remember, before, Israel could only experience God through the priests, and they they had to go through the sacrificial system. But things changed with Jesus. Because people didn't need that mediator anymore. They could go right through Jesus to be with God. So Jesus is king, and he is also savior. He is Lord. He is liberator. He's come, and he's overthrown the powers of sin. And what is the most powerful power of sin? It's death. That we will one day die and no longer exist because of our brokenness. And that's what Jesus defeated most of all was death. When he resurrected from the grave, he defeated death. But he left and he said, I'm coming back. So this is where we find ourselves. This is where we're at in the story. We're the people here while we wait for Jesus to return. Now next week, Advent starts, and that's what Advent's all about. It's, reckon, it's waiting for Jesus' birth and waiting for his return. We're a people in anticipation of our king who is not here yet. His full glory has not been revealed. Sin is not going to be completely overthrown. There's still death. There's still brokenness and we're still waiting. But there's hope. The hope found in Revelation. The hope when our king comes on the clouds and every eye will see him and know who he is. I better get a drink. When everyone will see him and know who he truly is. As he says in verse 8 of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's our creator. He's our maker. We're lost until we get back in this story. This is the story of who we are. This is why we're here. This is why we're able to do the things we're able to do. Because we are placed here in creation to represent the one who made us. Little glimmers of his character and goodness are in all of us. But there's something really twisted about the way we are. And that was set free in Jesus. And it's good news that Jesus is king. Because not only does he save us from our sins, but he finishes the story. And a day is coming, he'll return. 
But what do we do while we wait? And now this is the kicker. Why are we still here? And what do we do? We're supposed to meet together. God didn't make us a group of individuals. He made us a nation. That's what the church is. We're all citizens of the kingdom of God. That kingdom he kept talking about. Jesus says the kingdom has arrived. It's not here completely, but it's here in my people. That's who we are. So this meeting is not just a meeting that we go to to make ourselves feel like we're religious. This is a meeting of God's people where we come to worship our king. Every time that we meet, we declare that Jesus is king, that he is resurrected, that he is living, that he is going to come again, and he's going to save and restore the world. When we meet, we're proclaiming that Jesus is king, and this is good news. We're also supposed to embody the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here amongst God's people. That's what we're called to as the church. We now have the role of Israel. Do you want to see what it looks like to live as an image bearer of God? Look no further than his people, the church. We now have the laws of Israel in our identity. We're called to be made like Christ, to follow his teachings, to embody what it looks like to be a person who is regenerated and restored. Now the reason we can do it and the Israelites can't, couldn't, is because when Jesus came and left, he sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells within all of us and transforms us and empowers us to follow Jesus. And while we embody the kingdom, we're also supposed to proclaim the kingdom. This is where we get back to the good news. It's good news that Jesus is king. Because he is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. God has finally established his king who will rule his people forever and is Jesus. Jesus is king and this is good news. So the thing about the word good news is in Greek it's euangelion. <clears throat> and euangelion is simply proclaim, it's, it's a proclamation of something good. And there's a verb form of it. And we translate it differently in our Bibles. We usually don't translate it good news. We translate it gospel. So the question is, well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the story that Jesus is king. It's the story of Jesus. Now, the story of Jesus is everything I just told you. It's not just that Jesus died for our sins. It's that he is the fulfillment of the story of Israel and he is our king. This is the good news. This is the gospel. The gospel proclaims that Jesus is king.
So on Christ the King Sunday, we gather as a group of refugees in a foreign land waiting for our king to return to take his place on the throne. Now that is not something that Americans think often. We think, you know what, we live in America, the land of the home, the land of the, what is it? The home of the brave and the land of the, home of the free and the land of the brave. I can't, you know what I'm talking about. And we are lucky to live in a place like America. But our government is not anything other than every other government that's ever existed. We might have a lot of good people doing their best to make this a place where people can live and be free and enjoy the blessings of God. But it's still a secular government. It's still humans who are broken trying their best. We're all still waiting for the one true, perfect king. And that's why I say Jesus for president. Really, it should be Jesus for king. Because he's already taken his throne. The question is, are we going to follow him or are we not going to follow him? Now, that is the question that every human needs to decide when they hear. Are we going to follow Jesus, the rightful king, or are we not going to? It's good news that Jesus is king. Let us pray. Heavenly God, Father, we come before you on this Christ the King Sunday. And we listen to the story of your people, our story, the story that we're a part of. May we get better at learning about it. May we get better at reciting it. May we get better at telling people about it. May we follow your son Jesus as king. We ask this all in your son's name, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.